Hi, this is Matt Sleppin, host of Leading Voices in Real Estate, and welcome to the latest installment of our podcast series. This is episode 24 in our series, and a special episode, so outside of our every other week release. Today's interview is with Dar Williams, a well-known folk singer who's been touring the country for over 20 years. We'll talk a bit about her music career, which interests me particularly as someone who, 40 years ago, had that career as an aspiration. But of course, talking music is not why we're here or why Dara's on Leading Voices. She's written a book called What I Found in a Thousand Towns, which is a book about her observation of what works and what doesn't work in communities, told from the standpoint of a touring musician who's returned to these towns again and again over the years. Her book is an insightful and deep exploration of community and placemaking from a very different perspective than we in the industry usually get to experience. She calls it positive proximity. Dara speaks knowingly about community building, both from her touring and as a long-term resident in her hometown of Beacon in New York's Hudson Valley. I had the chance to speak with Dara a few weeks ago in Berkeley after her playing the night before with her folk supergroup, Cry, Cry, Cry. It was a great conversation and more deeply personal for both of us than we usually get on Leading Voices. Also, you will get to hear Dar play one of her wonderful songs, February, at the end of the show. Take a listen, and I hope that you enjoy the conversation. As always, if you enjoy the podcast, please subscribe to the show, rate us on iTunes or your favorite podcast app, and feel free to email me at matt at with feedback and ideas for the podcast. Enjoy the show. So first of all, Dar Williams, I'm really pleased and excited to have you here on Leading Voices in Real Estate. Uh, the real estate and Dar Williams may not typically go together, so and our guests may not know you as they may know most of the other people we talk to because they're full-time real estate people or planners or city planners, uh, developers, nonprofits, CEOs. That's the theme of the podcast, but today's different because you just wrote a book called What I Found in a Thousand Towns, A Traveling Musician's Guide to Rebuilding America's Communities. And you tell it from the perspective of having been a traveling musician for the past 25... 20, 25. I, I want to say the wrong number here. <laughs> <laughs> 25 years. And I've read your book. It was delightful. I learned a lot. I also saw your concert last night with Cry, 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 I I did shed a tear for a moment when you sang the Cold Missouri Waters song because I just lived through the Sonoma fires, kind of, yes, yeah. and the song resonated so deeply. Um, and then a, a last comment and a disclosure um, is I'm one of the minions of unfulfilled musicians and a guitar player for my life, and I figured maybe at this point in my life, I'd be sitting on your side of the microphone telling stories from the road. Oh, man. And I never got to do that. I could play passable guitar. I have a voice like a frog. And I could never write songs, which I find strange because I love to write mm -hmm. generally. So it's an interesting thing. But I'm so curious, um, and we'll talk about it a bit in the podcast as well as communities, um, just your perspective from that industry, which interests us, us all, of course. Sure, yeah. Um, so, but, and one other comment, um, I put this as the headline, is 
I went to a place as a kid between age 16 and 18 about every other week called the Main Point in Bryn Mawr, Pennsylvania. Have you heard of the Main Point? I'm just yes. so curious. And yes. did you ever get to play there? No, I think it was called The Point by the time I, w- I got there, and I'm yeah. not even sure if it was still. Um, but um, there's this core of people who do great concerts in Philly, and people who had worked for them and with them kind of split off and, and, and shepherded, I believe, what uh-huh. we call The Point. So I'm pretty sure it was The Main Point. So it, there was something about Philly that... that stewarded music like off the beaten track music really well and i think that the main point was part of that and then xpn which is a station that created people listening to music differently kind of came out of that ethos so that's another reason the main point but i think it became the point Uh uh, which was famous briefly the point and then it just disappeared and it was the saddest thing I see. Okay, so I wasn't sure what happened with yeah, but the people who did those kinds of concerts are still there and their heart is still in it. It's really a, a, an unusually well um, uh, uh, curated, you know, well done operation right. putting on concerts in, in Philly because they do it for the right reasons. Uh-huh. So we'll we'll come back to this because it'll be relevant to your story. And so I always like to start at the beginning to give listeners and myself just an understanding of where someone came from. So talk about growing up, talk about community when you were growing up in your family world, and then how music snuck in or didn't sneak in. Um, You know, it was a really typical suburban um, 70s family in a town that was kind of going from a one-horse town to becoming a pretty high-powered you know, commuter commuting suburb in New York City uh, from New York City. So we were in Chappaqua, uh-huh. which is where Bill and Hillary Clinton live now, and a, and a lot of right. people. <laughs> we read about it from time to time. Right. So, so the people who my dad grew up there. Um, his his best friend's dad got involved in the school system and said, you know, I don't want to send our kids off to private schools. I want our school to be great. And there was this all this kind of lore of of the community conversations and hirings that turned Chappaqua public school system into this very high-powered school system. So that was starting to happen just as my sisters and I were born. And um, there was a kind of a a stodgy, what's wrong with the way it's always been, town council, you know, uh, town supervisor and board, um, and some new people ran and my parents got really involved with that, the first Jewish people <laughs> to run for office in my town. Uh-huh. And my mom was baking bread for, for them. And so, <clears throat> you know, you could get involved with the schools, you could get involved with local politics, bringing in sort of this new blood. The, the commuter line uh, came in and, and got electrified, so suddenly people could get to New York City really quickly. And it just became both um, more progressive and also more fancy kind mm-hmm. of uh in in the early 80s right it, it, it's interesting and, and your father talk, talk more about city council or involvement in local politics because it fits the theme here well you know when i was doing this book i was i i actually wanted to call some people who were involved with you know big thinking about real estate because big thinking means you're thinking about your downtowns and every you know right. a, a macro curb appeal <laughs> uh-huh. and my parents were were just they understood that a lot of who you are exists beyond your 
house beyond your front door. Uh-huh. And, um, and I think both of my parents had a very introspective side, but it was this kind of ethos, like you have to get involved with fund, you know, we all have to, to, to do some of this lifting. And right. um, we had this really cramped, cute library um, in town. And my dad was part of this group to build a library. I mean, really build a big one. And just as they were realizing, you know, in the mid-70s, so a lot of financial crises going on, right. he said, we also need a theater and a gallery space in that library. We need that. And they're like, Gray, <laughs> you're going to kill it. You're going to kill the vote, you know. Uh-huh. And um, he said, no. It's, and he understood social capital. He understood that gathering spaces were important. And he won. And they won. And the library won. Right. And that theater became the gathering place of my town for readings and talks and you know that's where the clintons talk when they do their book readings and stuff and that's where i did summer theater and Uh so so the town really took on a lot more personality and charm and and attractiveness when that library got built and when these new people came in and said we've got something special here we have to invest in our playing fields and all that ordinary stuff it's it's funny. Uh, have you been to Telluride? You've probably played. yes, I have. And have you been to their library, which is a community center? And it you, and you, I've always wondered what happened to libraries. Yeah. We could have a, an yeah. entire go down a rabbit hole on libraries. <laughs> right. But as a community gathering place, I yeah. was there. They had exercise. They had theater. They had free DVDs. It was yeah. unbelievable. It's a very and actually. I was just in a library in. Um, uh, uh, oh gosh, <laughs> somewhere and um, Clearwater, Florida, uh-huh. and they had a cafe, a nonprofit cafe run by kids, and they had other things like that, and they had um, <clears throat> a, sort of a gallery of local history, and yeah, it um, the libraries that do that that understand well, every business, every institution, every school, every house knows, you know that when you somebody said i knew that my business i couldn't just brand my business i had to brand boise as well because i was in boise right. libraries can't just be about books and and being upset that nobody's reading their books they have to figure out how they can extend that hand into the community and they do it in these really like diverse ways sometimes they'll have a theater sometimes a cafe they'll have contests right. librarians are very resourceful people there, it's amazing. So, talk about music growing up, and then college, and then right. how you became a touring musician. So that's what oh yeah, that's a, uh, yeah. Sorry, I just realized <laughs> that's, okay. that's that's the hat that people recognize. You know, we just sang a lot, and we were told. You know, my dad talked about a rally he went to in 1968, and you know, he said, and and there it was. The the times there are changing, and he started to sing it, and then he started to get all teared up. And I thought that he went to a rally where Dylan sang, which of course I know Dylan never did that, but right. it was just some guy singing it at the Westchester Convention Center. Uh-huh. But even that, so this idea that music turns this wheel, was kind of in my family. And there was this one day I was homesick from school and I pulled out an old Judy Collins record, but I never had really listened to the lyrics because, you know, mm-hmm. you grow up and, and I heard the depth of this poetry and the depth of this faith, I think, that these artists had that they were affecting the world. Like something was really on their shoulders as right. ambassadors. And I thought, gosh, can you imagine what it would be like to take music that seriously? Because we were in the midst of the disco era. 
which had its own seriousness <laughs> to it. Very you know. different, though. Yeah, and and um, got people out dancing and gathering, and that's good. <laughs> but that those Leonard Cohen lyrics and the Joni Mitchell lyrics and and Judy Collins in particular pulling out political songs, Jacques Brel songs, and you know international songs. I just put that in my back pocket, but I was thought I was going to be a theater person, and that's what I pursued. And I loved playwriting, and I loved the complexity of plays and operas. And then I moved to Boston, which is a music town. <laughs> I didn't move to New York because none of my friends were thriving right. there. So I said, I'll write plays in Boston. And the local press savaged all local theater to the point where it was just such a, uh, it was, it just crawled along. But you could be, um, you could be in the Pixies, you know, you could do all, you could do alt rock, you could do new opera, you could do all sorts of folk. The wheel was turning back. Big time. Right. from you know although those clubs were coming back amazing and and then there are all the boys who are making music and I wanted to be where all those boys were <laughs> so I did all those open mics and I had already written some songs and and I discovered that that would be my challenge to try to create some of that those things that you hear in plays and operas but in songs and I was surrounded by people who had such faith in what music could be and we kept each other going it was right. a community Mm-hmm. So talk about being a touring musician. What, what I want to get to, of course, is how you saw A Thousand Towns and what that meant. But talk about that life for 20 years or the period of time where you're going from town to town. And I'm imagining places, you know, like the Main Point or Freight and Salvage that we were here last night. And all these towns, you must get there twice a year or every other year. Mm-hmm. You form relationships. You see change. So talk talk about that. A lot of times what will happen is um, you'll come to a place and there's this guy, you know, and it's really funny because that's how it's described. You know, you'll talk to t- people about their towns and they're like, oh, well, there's this guy. You know, there's this guy who sees a full-fledged concert venue in a base, you know, but all he has is a basement or uh-huh. a woman. <clears throat> and they come in and they, they get their friends to, you know, write tickets out on... I was just at a place where a guy had printed out and cut out numbers that he placed on the seats, you know, and uh-huh. and the acoustics aren't so great, and but they've got this little sound system and they've figured it out, and and so and so is going to bake some brownies, and you know, and then you come back the next year and it's like there's a little table for the brownies. I mean, it's just like that, and their heart is in it. Sometimes they're not even that. Um, socially adept, you know, they love right. music, but their their social skills are terrible, so they're really horrible. <laughs> this you guy, know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, this guy. Uh-huh. And but you come back, and there's someone who kind of understands it better, and you know, the word has spread in the community, and there's more chairs, and there's, and then you come back the next year, and there's a gallery nearby and a cafe, and um, I mean, a lot of towns have have really grown around this this one engine, um, but it's not just because of of getting seats in the seats um for these concerts it's also because those people who made the brownies and made and the person who brought you there and the person who wrote the press relief release i mean this happened in my town i did a project a beatles sing-along with a whole bunch of friends and then i said oh my gosh ivy's really good at press releases and so and so is good so now we're going to do this cool trick-or-treating thing in a in a part of town that nobody goes to and I'm going to call Ivy to do the press release. I'm going to call Kim to do the poster for this, too. And right. so towns suddenly started to grow around the conversations that were happening in that basement. 
Mm-hmm. And I would come back the next year and see that the same people who had brought me in were now planting flowers in a park and starting Girl Scout troops and creating public swimming and public gardens. And they were, you know, so I watched towns grow up as venues grew up. And because of those people, mm-hmm. it's the same people that grow the towns because they become community leaders. Become community leaders. It's their first sense of it. So it's really interesting to watch them go from shy, shaky, right. somewhat antisocial people to uh, town council members and sometimes the mayor and sometimes it, you know, or very hooked into the structure, not afraid of government right. so that they can do the maximum amount with, you know, the hand-in-hand relationship with government. So it just funny you're reminding me. Um, I founded the coffee house at Oberlin College, oh. and when I got there as a lousy musician, I wanted to play because mm. I thought it, I had a voice, and there was nowhere. And so, with a group of two other people, we founded a coffee house in a basement. We had to go through government to get it started because we needed the college to support it. And of course, it's since moved and has become a thriving institution that's there thirty some odd years later. Yeah, yeah. Same thing. What is it called? The cat something. Cat and the cream. Cat and the cream. Did you play there? I did. I did. Oh my god! Of course. (laughs) In nineteen ninety four, I believe. Yep. Yep. (laughs) I I wasn't behind the counter anymore, but uh, I I was the founder. (laughs) I imagine you weren't (laughs) because I needed a place to play. Okay, so you're in all these towns and you tour them year after year. Yeah. And how how do you and, and the other thing I'm reminded of is you talk about the guy I'm keep thinking of your father because you yeah. grew up in a household where you're maybe psychologically now seeking this thing that you you yeah. know what it felt like. There's probably a there's probably a kind of an a, an Oedipal element <laughs> <laughs> to a song to coming. seeking out that kind of that kind of but you know again not just the father but the peer group right you know my parents made it clear that they wouldn't be who they were without the community around them. And they were very introspective, and it was very much, you know, married in the 50s, and so they, you know, right. a lot happened under our roof. But they made it clear that you aren't who you are until you figure out that other concentric circle. You know, there's the national news on the TV, and then mm-hmm. there's, you know, what happens in your family. And then there's that other concentric circle of your community. And I think there was some you know, skepticism or cynicism about finding your life outside your doors as all of these factories and mines were closing down. So communities were shifting their identities really fast. And the malls came along and said, why would you want to shop in your downtown when you can come out here? So it was really interesting to see my parents consciously saying, no, no, you have to get out there and figure (laughs) out how to anchor yourself in the community. And yes, you're right. That's what I saw in these coffee houses, these people who really took the, it's like those dogs with the electric fence. You know, it's like they had that collar of shyness. Uh And they were like, but I really want music in my town. (laughs) And they would just go through the pain of putting themselves into the public Uh square. And and then they discovered that they weren't going to just die. And they discovered they had, and they started to get married to each other and go out together. I mean, all sorts of different kinds of relationships came from daring to get into the public square, as right. we say. the public square. I think a lot of people are painfully shy till they realize as they grow up that they can't be or they aren't and they have expressive needs. Yeah, yeah. They, they, they have to prove it through an experience, I think, to, to really to get there. Right. So here you're touring towns for 20 years, and are you, like, 
taking mental notes? Is it creeping up on you that you're watching this thing? Mm -hmm. And also, when you're in different places, I want to get to the there, there question, because Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. there is a there, there, and you know when it is, and you know when it isn't. And maybe when there is, after the concert feels better than a night, you just go back to a hotel room and can't wait to get to the next town. Right, right. It started with coffee. <laughs> it's like, who had good coffee? You know, it's almost like trying to find a campfire. No one had good coffee. Well, except for the food co-ops. And um, I did a directory of, of natural food stores. And people said, wow, Dar, you must be really healthy. I'm like, well, it's like I've, I'm half Whole Foods and half Dunkin' Donuts. You know, I, 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 <laughs> I've got it. <laughs> and I'll eat anything. I mean, I'm an incredibly adaptable person. But I did do this natural food store directory because I was feeling that, like, those were the outpost campfires of towns. They had the friendliest people. You know, they had expensive food, but they had the best coffee. Right. And, you know, in the early 90s, that's a thing, pre-Starbucks and all that. And and they also had that sort of palms-out ethos of you need a chiropractor, you need a massage therapist, you need, you know, this groovy thing. or You know, they had people who had their eyes open and had that sense of agency, you know, the sort of hangover from the hippie time. Right. And they wanted to help, and they were ambassadors to where you were to find what you wanted, you know, to the libraries and, and those things. So I realized later... It, I certainly wanted to help the natural food industry and organic farmers, but I was also trying to help people find that warmth that was coming from from these uh, places um, because it was so important to my soul. You know, that was the next thing where you feel warmth. Right. Is you know you really don't have a home. I couldn't have a house plant. I didn't have a lot of friends. I didn't have a pet. I was renting this place. Mm-hmm. I couldn't make a lot of friends. I was even getting sort of successful in a way where I felt a little different than other people around me because they didn't know how to talk to me and I couldn't. there wasn't a lot of cohesive. So I went to towns and found warmth in a kind face in a food co-op. <laughs> I really gravitated towards that. But that warm center grew and, you know, little tentacled arms all around um, whether it was through a concert venue, a natural food store, and right. and towns would start to have a whole feel, the whole uh-huh. town. And let me ask a question. So you, you're talking about towns, and this all feels rural to me, or ex-urban. Mm. Mm. Do you find the same experience in a suburban town? Yes. So kind of talk about a little bit about the difference between those places, because suburban communities have a center, too, and they have these places of warmth. Well, Chappaqua is a suburb. Fair. You know, it's this is the thing. And there is, um, I mean, this is what I've discovered. So this is my lens. You know, capitalism offers you convenience, the convenience of never running into people, the convenience of never, you know, embarrassing yourself, the convenience of never going to a library because you can just buy your books online, all sorts of things. You can even have servants who do things for you so you never have to leave your, I mean, you can get way up into your isolation and call it convenience and luxury. Right. And then there are sort of the the everyday examples of that in suburban life, you know, where your your ideal is to not have to leave your house and get into, you know, all of that stuff. And then there's, you know, the whole narrative of, of division of, oh, you know, we're a bunch of morons. Look how we can't get anything done. We can't 
figure things out. We can't collaborate. So let's just call government this thing we blame. You know, don't get involved with your zoning committee. Yell right. at your zoning committee. And meanwhile, you have a few people who understand. In suburbs, you have to get past this mentality that we've moved to the suburbs to have these great amenities that we pay for, um, but we are isolated from, from it. You have to, there's some places that have very wealthy downtowns, beautiful, but right. there's no buy-in. There's no sense of investment or pride. So they're cold to the touch. Mm-hmm. You ha- it's, it's a mindset. You can have the most beautiful suburb, but that mindset of, yes, I bought this beautiful house, but I'm here to get out of that house and into the PTA and you know, volunteering, caring about other people who have less than I do, thinking in bridges. That's a struggle that um, I think suburbs had in the 90s that I think people are getting past. I think they're getting into the ethos that to live in a community means daring, <laughs> daring to get out it's there. It's interesting. I- I, and through the conversation, I'm thinking about this because I'm a very engaged person. And I engage like with a lot of folks. That's how I make a living, I guess. Yeah. At the same time, I've been a poor community person for m- my whole life in terms of being involved in the community, maybe because I move a lot. Mm-hmm. My parents weren't into it. Mm-hmm. They, they were solo folks. And but you can, but I engage in community because I prefer to be around folks. It gives me, and I feel hot when I'm around folks. Yeah. And I feel cold sometimes alone. Yeah. Although when I'm around folks, I'm observing often more than participating. So there's different avenues into these feelings. I didn't get involved with a lot of stuff. Just just as an FYI, I didn't. You know, it. it I wouldn't want anyone to feel pressure or expectation insofar as. I was on my own. <clears throat> not only did I not have a houseplant or a lot of friends, I also didn't know the name of the the mayor. I didn't know the the. Um, I kept on mixing up which county I was in in terms of my congressman. <laughs> right. <laughs> I mean, I just kind of voted with the slate. When, Change when you have kids. Um. Yeah. You know what? And that's it a cool thing. Ties you in. Somebody said. He said, "Wow, you have kids now." You know, people say you're a mother now. How is it like? And I said, like, "It's just." I'm the same person. I always loved kids, and now I love mine, but I didn't change. And, you know, I didn't like the sort of sacred motherhood thing. But this one guy said, I bet you really love your community now. And I said, bingo. (laughs) That's the change. You meet all of these different people in this different way, and and you, for very many reasons, you have to get outside of what we would call our comfort zone when we have kids. And um, and you have to learn about your government and your schools and your libraries when you have kids. It just right. it just is going to happen, and you're downtown because getting those kids into the safe the child seats, oy, you know. <laughs> so so even that you kind of want your downtown and um, so it was uh, yes I think that that was probably um, that was it and then I got way in um, and that's been and now I see people out of the periphery and I want to pull them in somehow, but I don't want to pull them into government. That's that's hard for a lot of people. So we have a community herb garden that we've gotten people involved with, and the Beatles sing along. Uh-huh. <laughs> that's how I get them. And yeah, and I've become like my parents, but I didn't, I wasn't for, for 15 of my touring years. I wasn't, I wouldn't say that that was who I was. In your book, you use a term, uh, positive proximity. Yes. And maybe that's all that we're talking about here. Yeah, but maybe. talk about positive proximity and what hell? Put a finger on it, and then put a finger maybe on negative proximity, so we can see the variance. 
Positive proximity is um, you wake up in the morning and you go out. It's, it's, it's the experience of living side by side with people and knowing that your life is better because there are other people, not right. despite the fact that there are other people. And you know, negative proximity would be you wake up in the morning and you think, have they, you know, cut down that damn tree branch that's shading my thing and, and, you know, that dog, have they put that dog on a leash yet and have they, you know, they, they, them, them, government is something that you blame. All that stuff is, right. is negative. And, you know, you get out in your car and you lock the doors and you listen to all of this paranoid radio stuff and, and it reinforces your, your anxiety and paranoia and your belief that your whole life has to exist in your computer. That's negative proximity. And that can be sown by outside interests who who love for towns to feel connected. Positive proximity would be me waking up in the morning, seeing people who are really hard to get along with, but agreeing to collaborate with them. Somebody rototilled the herb garden for me, uh-huh. who was did an amazing job. He really went and he did it over and over again. He kind of was he was very thorough and as he did it he was telling me about how trump was going to make our country great again and he was really selling it on me (laughs) and i was trying to sell a different thing and um that was great i was so grateful that he did it i was so grateful to be with someone who was so different from me but we had this common vision that's positive proximity and towns with positive proximity are fantastic they are so interesting they'll have you know, film festivals, they'll have a children's film festival, not just a regular film festival. They'll get boating, they'll have free swim lessons in their public, you know, not just public waterworks, but but free swimming lessons because they understand there's such an economic and racial divide in terms of who swims. There's always, you know, a, a free health clinic. Berkeley has that. There's always that mm-hmm. sense of vertical, we're growing up, but then that horizontal branching out you know, I have this, but who am I if I have this and nobody else has it? Right. That's positive proximity, too, at a certain political, you know, iteration. Makes sense. Uh, the last night after the show, I was reading, rereading the introduction to Jane Jacobs' book, mm-hmm. and she was describing what it's like to walk down her sidewalk. Yeah. And the number of people, a number of interactive hits you get in an hour makes that a great street versus an isolated street. Exactly. It's a very, it's a feeling that you have, and it's a trust, and it's also a sense of belonging, and it's also, I think, you know, I think I, at the end of the day, have a kind of a a belief, like a spiritual belief, that when you feel like you belong someplace, you go towards that Martin Luther King I am not free till everybody's free feeling. When you feel like people have taken care of you because that's the ethos that you're sitting in, right? It, it grows. I mean, it's 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 a good feeling in the air no matter what. But I think there is a moment when people, you know, I did this book tour and everyone said, "I love what you're saying about you know prosperous, local, friendly downtowns and all those fun festivals and things." But what about poverty? What about racism? What about you know? <clears throat> once you feel that thing, you're thinking beyond, you know. It's like the opposite of redlining, which I'm sure you know all about, right. where you want to figure out how to create the, all the access that you can so you don't have Eleanor Rigby, you know, <laughs> <laughs> hanging out there. 
Um, so, so that's positive proximity. Yeah. Right. So, let, and I was going to go just where you asked the question about, you know, thinking of the other side of these things, the other side of these things with low-income housing, the other side of these things with NIMBYism, the other side of these things with local government that stops any development period because I got mine, mm-hmm. they don't need theirs. The community doesn't need to get better. Um, how do you, and, and then the the negative side of these very precious things you're describing, and precious has two meanings, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. it's a little cutesy at the same time that it's preciously, you got to hold it and have it. Mm-hmm. So any, re- I could keep drilling, but any reactions on just those different thoughts about this? Yes, you're talking about gentrification, and I'm guessing. That's one of the words. And, and yes, and actually my thought is let's not call it gentrification. Let's, let's call it displacement because I think that's really the – Totally the, true. The, uh, of the anxiety of it. And um, displacement is, a, is a, like a spiritual thing or an emotional thing as well as a physical thing. Um, so I think about it all the time. I think most people do who love urbanism and, and what's going on. So Jeff Speck said something really great in Suburban Nation – said we ha- we improve our communities and we gentrify you know there's got to be a difference between improving and and gentrifying um in terms of of we don't want a drug deal on every corner we don't want bad street lighting we don't want crappy schools we want the the abundance of the commons right and then there's that moment and this is where i get a little hippy dippy cuz i say positive proximity is is where we say oh I'm, I'm shy, but I'm good at filing. You're shy, and you're good at making a poster. She's not shy, and she has no skill sets, but she's a great front for our organization. <laughs> you know, and you you put all that stone soup. You know, I right. have this stuff together, and you have this beautiful soup. I have this faith that the the peep the cooks who made that soup, now that they're in conversation with each other, can, in turn, talk about. It's, this is the elusive part. There's a magic moment when you have something, but you still think you're in aspiration mode. And right. you're open to flattery from outside developers who will tell you <laughs> uh-huh. that they care and they don't. Or things start to sort of run amok and you don't realize that you're, you're so there that now your real estate is spiking and is that what you wanted? And um, So the ideal, I think, is that moment when you realize you've gotten there enough to say, how do we have a conversation within the government and outside the government to protect the things that are important to us. And I saw this in Phoenixville, Pennsylvania. Uh-huh. They said to me, all these community leaders um, and the borough manager, they said, we have developers coming in. We're so excited because this is what we're telling them they have to do. And you could just see how that conversation was going. They were open to growth because they had the confidence of positive proximity. They knew who they were, they had a sense of identity, and they said, we're telling them, please have a lot of underground parking so that people can walk to town. We feel like the pedestrian, you know, people want to ditch their cars after work, so give them lots of parking so that they can come to a poetry reading on a Wednesday night right. and a restaurant. Make it beautiful because it's going to be right there in the middle of the town. Go ahead and make a lot of units because we want more people in our town. As long as they're not driving everywhere, we welcome 300 new citizens. We can't wait to show them all of these things we've created. So there's an amicable relationship with a 
developer to be had and with the future and affordability um, if you have it. That's an example of, of positive proximity at work yeah. towards that next step. So and, and let's keep talking about Phoenixville. Just That may mm-hmm. or may not be a good example. So if they get the 300 new units, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. are they – and does – are they what income group is coming into those 300 units? Is it gentrifying, which means raising the income levels, or is there a percentage of low-income people, or is it both? How's that work? All right, this idea? is this is going to sound you know? really Dr. Susie because right. like because I will I tend to idealize Phoenixville, <laughs> but they have you know affordable. They have houses that are for different kinds of income, lower income folks, you know, starter houses and things like that on literally the other side of the tracks. But because there's that kind of positive proximity, that doesn't equate with, you know, danger or one ethnic group on that side of the tracks. It's a very diverse group of people and it's safe. They have potlucks. They get along. So you have that overspill of affordability on the outskirts. It's still somewhat pedestrian, maybe bicycle. (laughs) So the the rental units are downtown. I looked at them because I love Phoenixville and they're rental. So see, that can be very variable. You know, Uh you know that, that that can, maybe that'll spike. That's not, but they were, you know, in the sort of the 1,000 to 3,000 depending kind of thing at range. That doesn't sound impossible. <clears throat> and then they also had that walkability of, you know, there's there's so much affordability in what you can do on uh, on any given night that's within the community. Right. So, so I saw that. Um, and I don't know. Nobody has a magic bullet for creating eternally affordable, all-tiers real estate if all the boats are rising, quote-unquote. You know, so... Nobody has that, but it's affordable for now, and they're proud of that. And they don't have what's called a formula business uh, exclusion, uh, and which means that a Starbucks or or an H and M could come in. But the borough manager said, "Why would they? You know, why why would anybody go to to Starbucks when they've got Steel City?" I'm like, ah, (laughs) (laughs) somebody's going to smell this success and come in and try to get in and profit from it without really caring about it. Right now, we are seeing an example of how the care and pride is keeping something in place, including affordability. I don't I don't have a better explanation than that. Yeah. Well, what you wind up having are there multiple issues in different places. So one comment, Phoenixville, suburb of Philadelphia, Philadelphia, an yeah. affordable city in my hometown, mm-hmm. but an affordable city to begin with. Mm. And so the di- the drivers there would be different than the drivers in a suburb of San Francisco Bay Area, for example, right, where right. we sit today, or New York, or any of the other kind of big Seattle, Portland, these cities are changing very, very rapidly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and then the question is, my, my feeling about gentrification is generally you want it till you don't. And then once you don't want it because there's too much, then you start fighting about, okay, how do we find a balance? We didn't know we had to find a balance till we got to a close to a tipping point. Right, right. And then you see it, and then all of a sudden maybe either, maybe positive proximity mm-hmm. has people collaborating together to think about it versus putting the battle walls up on different sides of the equation. And you just named it too. That moment, that moment when we, we want it till we don't want it. Also, maybe what I would call positive proximity 
or maybe if if we can counsel people to say look around you you know there's such a narrative of look around you and see what's wrong if there's a narrative of look around you and see what's right maybe people can recognize that moment before the tipping point as well right. so because develop some developers will come in and this happened in my town they come in from the outside and weird stuff went down i mean like it was like coming in and infiltrating at a very personal social level getting people in on committees and boards where they could do the massive maximum amount of splitting and watering down of of, of standards um <clears throat> it was really uh ugly how socially divided we were by an outside developer uh-huh. and um so <clears throat> the ideal is to recognize it so that when that trojan horse comes pulling up saying this is you know you want this you say mm. <laughs> uh, and but then you're right on the other side of it maybe if you have these relationships in place instead of saying look what you did look what you did saying right. look what happened and look what happened what are we going to do about this thing that's happened here and that's a really healthy attitude mm-hmm. and you use the word developer, Trojan horse, and infiltration in the same sentence. <laughs> right. And these are my peeps, so I got to... No, I, no, no. I and, and I have to say, Phoenixville, no Trojan horse, no infiltration. That was an excellent example of development. We have a developer, someone who works with development in our town, Jonathan Rose, uh-huh. who who is in the New York Times for showing these really collaborative, multi-tiered, multi-economic, shared resources, you know, those things... Great developers are very important. So, no, developers are, A, essential, and, B, they can do an enormous amount of, of uh, good to help a community realize its potential. And, but there are a lot of them out there that will come in, and they, they just want a wide enough street for their bulldozers to come in. Right. And that's what we got. That's what we got. And, and it's so interesting. So, of course, Jonathan is a a client and a friend and was on the podcast uh, in season one and talks just so eloquently about these issues. Yeah. Um, it takes a developer who they may want to pig out and just get as much as they can and be done. Yeah. Or they may have it as a long-term <laughs> perspective, a long-term hold and something they want to show changes community so they can go to the next one and ho- hopefully make some money. I, I agree. I agree that those ex- those, those long thinkers are, exist and, and they probably prosper the most at the end. And, and one of the challenges that's interesting, and we won't talk about it here, but in this world, the things that people thought were the thing to do 20 years ago may have been failures or something that didn't uh, plan unplanned obsolescence like a bad fort or something yeah and 20 years later here's a project or a community is like blah should shouldn't work we shouldn't we should have learned from these mistakes yeah and go forward the, the soup of not mistake is so hard to figure out yeah yeah i would you know but i, I mean yes and that's the thing. I mean, you know, you have these prevailing social theories and, and mm-hmm. you have these wonderful urban planners who have said, let's go towards, you know, these words like infilling and neighborhoods and, you know, cul-de-sacs used to be the the, right. the gold standard and now cul-de-sacs are seen as being too isolating. And, you know, I always imagine happy kids on bicycles in cul-de-sacs, but they point out what the cost of that is in terms of overall connectivity. And so, <clears throat> you know... I will always, I mean, I will always 
all swipes against a divisive narrative of someone like our President Donald Trump aside, as much as, as, as development can be a respectful conversation with a community as possible, and that's oftentimes Republicans, you know, there is a trust in, you know, how we, you know, a, a faith in history and tradition and, and, you know, kind of doing things right. And I mean, that's Democrats and Republicans. I would say that when you're in conversation with the town that's there and those, you know, radical librarians and the progressive, interesting science teachers and the right. very invested, somewhat eccentric town council people, when you find those heat seekers who are community mouthpiece, you know, who speak for the community, right. I think that you will succeed. I mean, I think that there are other people who just want to get in, bring in a bunch of their friends and who do crappy work and you know, bad materials, bad aesthetics, bad everything, don't want to pay for the plumbing system that might explode when they put their development in. That's not, that's terrible for everybody. But they probably will make their money and then move on. And, and, and towns are riven by these, these, these folks. I mean, that's what we saw, I think, starting to happen in our town. But if you have this conversation, Dover, New Hampshire, didn't tear down all of their historic buildings and they have these really caring historical preservationists and somebody was talking to somebody because when you walk into those old mill buildings that Uh are now apartments you just want to live there and they have all of the old pulleys and ropes and spindles up on the wall to show you what was happening there and it somehow spurs the imagination for your you know tech startup and there's a town next door nobody wants to live in because they did that smart thing of tearing it all down and nobody wants to live there. We, I interviewed the mayor of Tacoma, Washington on mm-hmm. the podcast, and she said we were so lucky that urban renewal didn't tear down our old buildings. So now we have the bones of yeah. wonderful buildings to come back to. Pittsburgh, same. Lots of towns like that. Yeah. Lots of towns like that. You know, I, I think one of the themes to this that we're not talking about is change scares people. Yeah. And so how do you go through a change process? And this is not a political issue. No. Both Democrats, Republicans, pro-growth, anti-growth, they well, don't change anything. Yeah. And one of the realities of the world is change. Yeah. One of the realities of the world is increasing population. Right. Be they immigrants or not, there will be more people. And densification is where... It's going. Density is good. Ten- density is generally That's positive. That's the new thing, yeah. So how do these things happen in communities to allow that dialogue to work successfully and not get people's heels down? Well, you probably have a lot more answers than I do, but the one thing I found was in Moab, which Utah, uh, which was that Robin Groff, and I don't know what his politics are, <laughs> um, said, well, you got to manage change. And he said it so casually, like that was just who he was. And I loved that word because, you know, resist change, you know. Not going to work. As a, as a philosophy, no. It's a bad place in life. Yeah. And, <laughs> and in, but, you know, embrace change in that kind of, you know, somebody was planning a food co-op and they said, we were trying to make a long-term plan. And, and one of our board members said, I just want to live in the moment. <laughs> Oh, you you know, it was a kind of hippie community. But right. um, managed change means change is going to happen, and and it's probably going to be growth. 
and it's probably going to be densification. And it's going to, and we're going to manage that Correct. inevitability. And But managing has a kind of a, a nice, solid feel to it. Because, you know, if change means a person saying, look, everything's changing, you've got to, you've got to build 16 hotels now, and you don't have the luxury of really dictating who that's going to be. Mm-hmm. We ha- These people all have a party in a box that they're just waiting to bring to your town, and they'll just open it up, and they know things you don't know. That's not really managing change, and that's not positive proximity. That's right. That's people, you know, that can be really uh, too much. Well, it's also confusing. Yeah. If you think through, you manage change as Jane Jacobs or you manage change as Robert Moses. Right, right. And that's it. There's two radically different approaches. One's really subtle. One's really logical. Yeah. And that logical thing just it has proven not to work. Right, right. So and it's change and tradition. What has worked forever. Exactly. And, and at the same time, you know... You, the Jane Jacobs and the Dar Williams, this the social capital based uh, growth, mm-hmm. bridging capital. There's something called bridging capital, which is uh, where it's not just the bonds of your congregation or the bonds of your ethnic background or your income, but you know, always thinking towards how we find the bridges between us. You know, within like I like roses, you like roses. I like canoes, you like canoes. You know, right. and, and we bridging social capital is 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 like a mosaic tile. And in a very interesting, or, or, or a mosaic of lots of little tiles. And you, if you come in and you just squash the tiles or uproot the tiles, th- then you don't have the, the beautiful, complicated thing that's been created. But there is a moment when that, that, that beautiful thing is ready to go to the next level. So the question is, how do we grow to the next level with enough understanding of who we are right. as a community? It's like a person, you know, when you're ready to bring another person into your life and you're a person with a strong identity, you know how that's going to work and how you can live together. Um, I, I have a lot of faith that communities now are understanding. I'm not remembering what your original question was here. <laughs> Me neither. Don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> but we ha- I think that there's sort of a, a more civic s- sense of identity and confidence going forward. And I hope that it can be kind of, you know, sexy. Like managing change. No, we don't just embrace it. No, we don't just resist it. No, we, you know, I joke that Republicans think that the, the government is trying to take something away from them. Democrats think the, that the government's trying to poison their food. You know, right. we all have these sort of inbuilt distrusting things. If you can sort of say, I'm this person and I have this relationship with government, with change, with new development, with developers, and you see that that's part of just being alive. Mm-hmm. Uh, it becomes really different at the local level, which is where we started the conversation. Yes, yes, and it feels right. You feel like you have the reins, right. and you feel and you and you understand that having the reins doesn't mean that you're going to have all the power, all the time. And you know, you hold them together. I've I really like the kid who brought me around Boise for the uh, tour of the public art uh-huh. the other day. I he showed up, and I was like, "Where's your you know, where's your dad?" <laughs> You know, he was like 24 or 25, and he was really interested in local history and art. And they have this thing called the Arts and History Department. So they put art and history together. Kids who understand that public art and history and what brought us here, and you've got to be on zoning and building committees, to, and, and you can do that young. Right. Kids who understand that now, 
It's a really, like, urban planning is kind of this sexy thing, and kids are getting it. Well, I, it's a return. I say this to everyone lately. It's the first time I've been in housing or real estate for 40 years, my whole career. Randomly got there. That's a different podcast. But I have never in my life and career seen front page news almost daily about issues relating to urbanization, densification, yeah. fair housing, housing affordability, affordable housing. These issues are huge front page news and they matter to everyone in a more real way than they ever have. Yes, it's a, it's and such young a people want to make a difference there. Indicator. Yeah, I I think that's a total indicator and I will say one thing that I think is a is a is a red herring when people get upset about how fancy and hoity-toity and expensive downtowns are. One thing I would caution is is that if you really want to expulse that no one is going to the big boxes and and big and big retail e, you know e-commerce mean that you're not going to be buying your aspirin on an a, a daily basis from your downtown right. or your snow shovel or your anything you know so the fancy stuff is what came in to get the pulse and heartbeat of downtowns going again and that is you know kind of goat beardy brewing you know coffee roasting beer brewing boys especially in places where those boys aren't married and they and they're together a lot and they don't mind hauling kegs on their shoulders at two o'clock in the morning and getting the street lights so some of those people who bring in the 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 opulence and the and the fanciness of the downtown i saw what the plywood and the spray paint and and this the the sadness and no one understanding how we were going to bring it back again, what that right. looked like. Uh-huh. So, so, you know, go for a, a 50-50, if not 70-30, restaurant to other retail <laughs> equation. That'll definitely, totally work. you know, definitely work. And, and, and definitely encourage the, the fancy store. I, I really want to encourage people to have general stores. So you sell artisan things, but you also sell aspirin. You know, definitely mm-hmm. encourage businesses to have a bit of, resident relevance um but also understand that before the 18 dollar beeswax candle came to town there was nothing and there was a whole civic vacuum that went with that nothing for the walmart in this yeah on the outskirts of town it was really it and and there was a despair that went with that and um the downtowns will bring us back to to looking at each other, not being afraid of each other, having face-to-face conversations, all that stuff, and so, so I cheer all the brewers and the roasters and the, and the art galleries and the music venues that are now seen. This whole art washing right. accusation, I'm not there. I think that they, I really believe that they can go farther to be better community neighbors if they're not. But the main point was a community neighbor right from the start. The the, the music venue. Right. Yeah. Cat and the Cream was a community player from the start. I think arts institutions are, all have a tremendous opportunity to to be um, to, to help brand in a positive way that that welcome into a community. Have you been recently to Phoenix? You know what? I swear to God, I don't know if I've ever been in downtown Phoenix because I go to all of the outlying. Yeah, I should send you. I'll send you one of the podcasts is with a woman named Kimber Lanning, and she runs a group called Arizona First, mm. and it's a downtown Phoenix small business um, 
support organization. Fantastic. And she talked about the multiplier effect of downtown businesses, but also she got her start uh, creating an art gallery that was a music venue and a used record store all at once. Yeah, she's she's our girl. <laughs> That's called, I call that a conscious bridger. You got it. Okay, so last question I ask this to everybody, which is if you had some advice for a young person starting their career, and probably their career having something to do not with music, but in this case with urban planning or development or real estate in some way, um, what would your advice be? Oh, man. Okay, one, open a general store. Because <laughs> I think that would be a fun thing for you. I mean, kids are getting out there and starting goat farms. I mean, that's tough. Yeah. And they're starting restaurants and stuff. I mean, that's tough, a, a, a general store that becomes a bar at night or something like that and, and has great coffee in the morning. I think that's the game of the young. So I say Open a general store, like a real one, yeah. and and sell real aspirin and and lose money on the aspirin Fair and enough. sell tube socks, please. You know, <laughs> so that's one. I just think that could be like a cool new downtown thing to do. Uh, that's part of this concern about communities and local stuff. Um, the other thing, as as we're discussing, is that getting involved with local government or with local organizations and seeing that this is a relational thing and it's you. It's actually an identity builder. That for, for you, you know, you can sit behind your computer, you can get involved with local, pol- you know, city politics or, or federal politics, but like that, in that concentric circle of your community and the things that you can dig into, I'm saying that for you, like mm-hmm. as a personal thing, uh, you young people, you know, getting involved with committees and boards can be really fascinating. And, and there's so much that can be unlocked in terms of sustainable, neighborly, equal, fun communities when you see yourself as part of that equation. Um, and, and the last thing I say is, is that, you know, as, as you heard me say yesterday, probably um, the opposite to me, the opposite of division is not unity, it is collaboration. The expectation of unity means that you're always going to be participating in this really negative, divisive rhetoric of, look what a bunch of morons we are. Look at how inept our governments are. Look how stupid everybody is. That's not true. Governments move at a certain pace, at a certain conversational level. People yell. People lose their tempers. People, you know, get drunk and run through the streets naked. Like, weird stuff happens. That doesn't mean we're failures. That means we're communities the real lattice works so don't buy into the narrative of division i I, the most important thing thank you i hope that you enjoyed today's episode of leading voices if you like the episode please rate us on itunes or your favorite podcast app and feel free to comment via our website leadingvoicespodcast.com or to me at matt at terrasearchpartners.com Thank you very much. So quickly, the keys and their owners, even after the anger, it all turns silent and the everyday turned solitary. So we came to February. Forgot where we planted those bulbs last year, and then we forgot that we planted it all. 
bizarre altogether And I blamed you for my freezing and forgetting And the nights were long and cold and scary Can we live to February? February 